0: Hello and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute, a uh, grocery store run edition. Today, I think I'm going to start at chapter nine of the podcast. Now they're coming slowly, as you've seen. Sorry for that. Uh, it's really just when I get out of the house for something. It's not which is ter- not terribly often, but I want to start uh, another chapter, chapter nine, talking about optimal beta reduction. And I want to talk about this, both because it's a amazingly unknown topic, despite its theoretical importance, and and possible practical importance, and also well. So, in other words, I, I think it's a it's something that people should know more about. Um, I'm also wor- working on it this summer myself. I've actually worked on it. If you if you've ever. Um, some of you may have noticed, I have a YouTube, um, sub channel or something called optimal beta reduction where every summer, yes, yeah, so yes, what's my release schedule? It's annual <laughs> in the summers. I release, uh, I release episodes about optimal beta reduction. I've done that the past two summers and I'm sure I'll do that this summer too. And, uh, so I'm working on it this summer. And so I thought doing a podcast chapter about it would be good because it will kind of be synergistic with what I'm, just thinking about for my own research efforts at the moment. And I also, would be nice to tell you a little bit why I care about this in the context of CEDIL and type theory and stuff like that. Um, and it is, uh, it's a topic in just untyped lambda calculus, so uh, optimal beta reduction, to my knowledge, has really only been, been considered... <sighs> For untyped lambda calculus, actually, I guess there have been some, there are some considerations f- that restrict the f- kinds of functions you're allowed to write a bit uh, to control the computational complexity and stuff like that. But mostly it's something for just pure untyped lambda calculus where there's not a type in sight. And so I, I want to say a little bit why I want to think about that for type theory Um as you know from listening to this podcast, if you've listened before, then you've known that we, you know, I am pursuing personally in my research direction uh, an approach to type theory based on pure type theory, just no, only lambda terms. There's no extras, no extras like data type constructors or things like that. Those, those, those have been the big targets to get rid of. So we just lambda encode data in deal. Anyhow, um, okay, so optimal beta reduction, uh, there's a question that uh, has been in the you know literature for lambda calculus for many decades, which is about sort of what's the most efficient way to try to reduce a lambda calculus term to normal form, if it has a normal form. And uh, there are various theoretical results on this, which I'm sorry to tell you I'm um, rusty or hazy on, uh, but one of the questions was, is there some way, is there some optimal strategy that's guaranteed to reach a normal form in the shortest number of steps possible? Uh, and I, as I recall, the the answer, the basic answer, uh, I, I I should be a little careful here because I'm really not 100% sure, but I, I want to say that the basic answer was that you never really know, if you're just looking at some big lambda term, you don't really know which reduxes are going to end up being needed. and so um, uh, There's some question about, I think maybe you can't have an optimal strategy. People can hit, hit me up if I'm wrong about this. You can't have an optimal strategy if you're just looking at lambda terms and just lambda calculus without any modifications or anything like that. Just looking at Pure lambda terms, and you want to reduce them. And at each point, you'd like to know: does this redex? Should I reduce this one or not? Uh, Then, as I hazily recall, the answer is no. You can't have an optimal strategy that way, basically, because it's impossible to tell whether a redex makes it in. in, Is going to end up needing to be reduced uh, on the way to the final reduction. I mean, to the final answer. I mean, the outermost redexes, you know, are going to need to be reduced. So if you have, if your term, you look at your term and you sort of start at the top and go down, and you find, uh, as you go to the left anyway, if you find that this term to the left starts with a lambda, and then it's got an, the lambda is being applied to something, well, there's no way to get rid of a redex, a lambda applied to something, in the head position of your top level term, unless you reduce it. You know, so you could have redexes that disappear when you reduce because there could be some redex, some random place in the term, that uh, you you apply a function that erases its argument. You apply that function to the redex or to some big term containing the redex, right? So if you have lambda x, and then the rest of the lambda term doesn't mention x at all, that's an erasing, you know, lambda abstraction, and so when you apply that. To something whatever you apply to is just going to vanish, and so you would definitely be wasting time to reduce redexes in this big argument that's going to vanish. And in general, you wouldn't necessarily know are things going to vanish or not uh, because it, you know you might have lambda x, and there might be some big term, hard to understand, complicated term that has some x's in it, but it turns out that as you reduce, those x's disappear. Right. So it's really you know it's tough to know, but you you definitely know for sure the terms um, in the head position of a lambda abstraction, l- redexes in the head position of a lambda abstraction are going to have to be reduced as you get to normal form. There's just no way to make those disappear um, except by reducing them. But interestingly, if you are willing to change your representation of lambda terms, you can actually overcome this kind of problem that, that we Again, I'm sorry if I hope I'm not getting this wrong. That we can't figure out which redexes we're going to have to reduce on the way to um, on the way to normal form. You can get around this problem if you let yourself reduce families of redexes, like you reduce a bunch of them in kind of in one step, or um, ideally and. You know, ideally, you, you, you want a sort of a graph representation of your lambda term. And so you share all the redexes that you really kind of need to be reducing at once. And you might be thinking to yourself, uh, and so the theoretical analysis of this sort of situation of kind of realizing that, well, if we could just reduce uh, sets of redexes in a single step, and if we we're willing to consider that a single step, then um, then we could have something optimal. That analysis is due to Jean-Jacques Levy. You can find these papers at like the late 70s, I think they are, or maybe the very start of the 80s. Um, I want to say it was maybe his doctoral dissertation, or there's some papers out there too, that are um, pretty pretty intense. I've worked on reading one of them, what seems to be the main source, and they're, they're pretty hardcore, but they are understandable. But it takes patience to get through the stuff. Um, anyway, so... But that was just a theoretical analysis, so he sort of proved that, yeah, this could be done, but he didn't offer any sort of scheme for actually doing this in an efficient way. And the research community had to wait about a decade or so until POPL 1990, POPL being Principles of Programming Languages, it's a main sort of theoretical programming languages conference, and uh, ACM conference. And POPL 1990, which has my bid um, mostly by serendipity and the fact that I probably don't know as much about other popples as I should, but that has two really amazing papers. So for me, that's like best popple ever. Again, sort of not based on a terribly representative sample of all of the amazing results of popple. There are two really great papers of that. One was Tim Griffin's paper on uh, basically figuring out how to extend the Curry Howard isomorphism to classical logic uh, as, via control operators. Amazing, amazing paper of totally readable. Uh, and then this paper by Lamping, John Lamping, who was at Xerox Park uh, back in the heyday um, when I think that was uh, maybe more, at least, well I had somebody doing some amazing lambda calculus work, that's a, kind of surprising uh, for a research um, lab there that I, I you know probably wouldn't have had a lot of reason to be focused on that sort of thing. Anyhow, um, the he had this paper uh, that actually proposed an implementation of optimal beta reduction according to sort of Levy's analysis. So it was optimal in the sense that the Levy proved, and you might say, and when I looked at this paper of Levy's, by the way, I want to say that it's not just, you know, there's, there's, he's, he's proved that if you reduce the schemes this way, then you actually get to the normal form of the lambda term in the shortest number of steps possible. So, um, it's, it's not, it's not just kind of like a, you know, like a rub your, the sides of your arms happy to feeling optimal. It's really optimal in the sense that you can't get to the normal form any faster than if you had followed some concrete implementation of sort of his theoretical scheme. And Lamping offered such a concrete implementation and in a, in a really remarkable paper, um, Remarkable for just some amazing insights into problems that would come up when you try to do optimal beta reduction and very careful and pretty easy to read writing. So I really commend Dr. Lamping for a really fine paper. And um, so so we'll <laughs> at the high level we say, oh, wow, great paper. He figured out how to do this. Problems should be solved, right? Everything should be done. Well, not really. Remember, I said at the start of this episode, this, this technology is barely known. If you poll programming language theorists, um, I think at best you get. I've I've done a well, I've done a little wee bit of this. At best, you get sort of a head scratching kind of yeah. I don't think that stuff really works. Um, and and I think they're right. I think that that stuff doesn't really work. And as it as it was developed then. Um, there were some sort of follow on works to this making connections to linear logic. Uh, and it, because, in fact, in Lamping's paper, let's see, so hmm, I have to tell you the basic idea that Lamping was trying to implement, and then we have to see sort of what kind of what, what he proposed to try to implement it. So, and actually, so yes, sorry, this is actually a really deep topic um, this optimal beta-, beta reduction. There's a rich very rich topic, and um, as I said, not well studied or understood. And I've done my best to try to get into it, thanks to bringing the great Victor Maya, who brought this to my attention um, several years ago. And and I was I was just like the other program. I was just It's like, huh? I actually I was probably even worse shape. i never even heard of it. So, but Victor knew tons about it. Um, and if you follow him on Medium or his work on Formality, you'll hear. Some of the great results he's been getting based on this, but anyhow, so the the basic problem that you have to solve to get optimal beta reduction is you need to try to avoid duplicating lambda abstractions in a in a graph sharing implementation. Now you say um, avoid duplicating lambda abstractions. Like what's what's that all about? And also, by the way, you might also have the reaction that one of my postdocs had a couple years ago, which was. I think Haskell already gives you something optimal, <laughs> to which people who've studied this will just chuckle and say, "No, no, no, no." Haskell doesn't. Haskell tries to share redexes as it reduces. You say, "Isn't that what we're talking about?" No, it's more than just graph sharing. Okay, so you know, so imagine you've built a graph representation of your lambda term, where you're trying to re- just have one graph instance, one piece of your graph for different subterms of the lambda term that are that are the same, that are, let's say, alpha equivalent anyway. Um, this is fine. This is great. And lots of people observed that this was a good way to go. The problem is at some point, you are forced to kind of break that. And the, the situation is, so imagine you've got this this graph that represents the lambda term, where you essentially have two pointers to the same lambda abstraction. Okay, so you got some, some piece of graph that represents the lambda abstraction, and you got two pointers into this graph from two applications. So in other words, you're trying to say, I want to do two beta reductions with this one lambda term. Uh, and now, in a good, a good situation where there's just one pointer to your lambda term, beta reduction is totally awesome because the way you represent a lambda term in a graph, you don't have a named variable. You just have a pointer from the, the lambda, the, the node that represents the start of the lambda term, to where that variable is used. Okay? Um, uh and let's let's just say for a moment it's only used once because we have to deal with using twice, and that's that's really where all this complexity starts to come in. Um, but say you just have your variables are only used once. So you just have a direct pointer from the lambda, the starting uh, node of the lambda graph to where that variable is used. okay? But anyway, so say that you have a lambda abstraction and if there's this, if it's in a Redux. And the variable is only used one time and the, the lambda abstraction is only used one time, then you just do a you just do a constant time graph r- rewrite. So you say, oh, I was applying this lambda term to an argument, and the lambda term has this pointer to where the variable is needed. I'm gonna just reroute so that argument, I'm gonna just put a pointer from the argument to where that variable was used, and then boom, that's all I have to do. I just f- kind of rewire my graph so that where I was pointing from the lambda node down to where the variable should be used, now I don't point from the lambda node, I just change the pointer to point from the argument. So the argument to the lambda abstraction now points to where that variable goes, I've just kind of rewired things so the argument is directly connected to where the variable used to be directly connected to. and uh, that's amazing. That's like a super efficient implementation of beta reduction if you can pull that off, right? Because that's just like a constant time switch rather than doing some complicated capture avoiding substitution or you know, using explicit substitutions or these other methods people have come up with to try to make beta reduction fast. Um, you can just do this graph rewiring and just a couple of instru- machine instructions. That should be just amazingly awesome, right? But there is a problem, which is this thing about what if your lambda abstraction is used in a couple of places? So in one place, you're going to do one beta reduction, you're going to do this graph rewiring. But notice that graph rewiring is a destructive operation on the lambda abstraction. You are going to change pointers within that lambda abstraction. So if the lambda abstraction is used twice, you can't destructively change it two different ways twice. That doesn't work, right? You, would have, you can't pull that off. You have to do something. And the basic naive thing that you do, which was the best anybody had ever thought of until lamping, was you just copy the lambda abstraction in that case. You had it shared for as long as you possibly could, and then you copy it in this situation because, again, you can't destructively modify the lambda abstraction twice. Okay, And so you do this full copy of the lambda abstraction, which could be very, very expensive. Alright, I have to stop now. Sorry I'm sort of a little bit in the middle of the flow here. Hopefully I'll be able to pick this up again sometime pretty soon. Thanks for listening.